Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is Alexander DePrima. Hey, man. <laughs> so like Alexander Sorry, Hamilton? I'm in a, on a huge Hamilton kick right now, can't get it out of my head, and I had the benefit of having somebody in my life named Alexander, so I thank you for that. Oh, yeah. I, I sing those songs all the time, and I just imagine myself... As, as who the songs were about. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love Hamilton. Alexander, what is the chief end of man? According to the Westminster uh, uh, Shorter Catechism, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I shouldn't say that. I mean, that's the answer they give. It's really according to the Bible. That is the chief end of man, to glorify God, to enjoy Him for all eternity. Okay, Alex, that leads us to our topic today, which is the topic of catechisms, creeds, and confessions in the life of the church, and how they relate to singing in the life of the church as well. Could you give a brief definition of what catechisms, creeds, and confessions are? Well, strictly speaking, I guess they're three different things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're their own various mediums of expressing truth, but, but each one, a catechism, a creed, a confession, is seeking to articulate um, with good language, descriptive language, um, some ways prescriptive language, uh, Bible truth. And so ordinarily, um, though, though the Bible does contain truth in question and answer format in a few places, though it does contain creedal material, we usually think of them as kind of man-made documents that mm. express what we believe to be true about the Bible. So a catechism is usually a tool that's used, usually in a question and answer type format, to provide catechesis or to provide teaching mm. Uh, uh, and, 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 and regular sort of discipline for the church uh, in the basic doctrines of the faith. A creed, at least the creeds we normally utilize and think of, um, and the, the word creed essentially just means belief, but when we think of the early ecumenical creeds of the early church, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and a few others, um, we're thinking of fairly short statements mm. that capture in very muscular and descript language some of the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And so, um, like Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in particular focus on matters related to God and who he is as Trinity, uh, the the nature of Christ, um, the basics of the gospel events in terms of Christ's virgin birth, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, about the forgiveness of sins, things like that. And then a confession is usually, um, at least the way I think of it and the way they've been utilized historically. Confessions are usually broader statements Hmm. that will address various heads of doctrine, God, man, Christ, sin, salvation, the world to come, et cetera, and will capture a paragraph, two paragraphs, and some confessions like Westminster, you could have several paragraphs. Um, You're capturing the Bible's basic teaching. A lot of times um, confessions will include proof texts or or reference texts and things like that. Um, Confessions can be as long or short in theory, as, as people want them to be, mm-hmm. but they cover some larger heads of doctrine, basically. Mm. Uh, do they tend to be exhaustive? No, I don't think any confession that's ever been written is exhaustive. Yeah. Um, but, but like our church, for example, utilizes uh, some, some basic kind of shorter confessions, for example, like the Abstract of Principles. Um, that's a Baptist confession, historic Baptist confession that's broadly evangelical, Calvinistic. Uh, each head of doctrine has no more than a paragraph. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but we also make frequent reference to the Second London Confession of 1689, mm-hmm. which is much more extensive. Um, doesn't address a lot of extra topics, though it addresses some, but it's more extensive mm. in its coverage. Um, and then you have confessions that might address a particular topic, like yeah. the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or um, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and, and things like that. Yeah. In your philosophy and experience, what do you suppose is the utility of catechisms, creeds, and confessions? Well, each one would have its own utility, I think. I mean, catechisms, there are children's catechisms that are wonderful tools for discipling children in the faith. They're also very helpful for adults in, um, again, providing good language to our faith and, 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 and memorable language. Uh, creeds can be utilized in a variety of ways. Creeds can provide a careful test of doctrine and orthodoxy for seminaries, churches, uh, institutions, mm-hmm. because uh, they do capture fundamental beliefs that are are held by all true Christians everywhere, regardless of denomination. Um, they define orthodoxy for us. I think creeds can be greatly utilized in worship, mm. and we're told to speak the truth together. Mm. We're told to remind each other of certain things. And I think the creeds can help us with that. They just give us a good basic template for truths we should recite together and say together. So they can be utilized in that regard. Um, by the way, I think creeds not creeds creeds are not um, they're not magical words. They should never be used as a sort of incantation or something right. like that. But they're wonderful to say as as you're dying. Hmm. You know, so if, if you know that you're on your dying bed. Few things you could do better than read the Nicene Creed. Yeah, you know, uh, confessions I think are often utilized a, a little bit more um, narrowly. Um, they can be used as charter documents for churches, mm-hmm. seminaries, institutions. They can be used as rules for faith in terms of how to um, uh, sort of um, establish the doctrinal parameters of a church's ministry or a particular eldership. So in our church, we use the abstract of principles as our primary confession of faith, and the elders agree to teach in accordance with that. It's, it's a doctrinal standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like I said, a, a, a statement like um, the Danvers Statement on Manhood and Womanhood, it provides a standard for what members must believe with respect to manhood and womanhood. So... Confessions, I think, should be utilized in, in those ways. There should be confessional standards for churches yeah. that regulate the church's teaching. I think you mentioned a, an important point that, that's all wonderful. One thing you mentioned was its utility in worship. I think that's something that could be gloriously recaptured in our day. The fact that yeah. these these creedal statements or confessional statements are something we can use in our corporate worship yes. as we're seeking to adore Christ, or yeah. as we're seeking to engage our affections, yes, yeah. uh, and as we're seeking to encourage one another with the truth. Yeah. I can think of so many times, I mean, I, I can't get through the Nicene Creed without tearing up, without, yeah. especially yeah. Heidelberg 1, oh, yeah. Apostles' Creed, you know, we use the Ligonier Statement on Christology. These yes. are all, these aren't just muscular statements that are just good to remind each other, but they truly stir our souls and our affections yeah. towards the Lord. There's something, there's something stirring about just saying words together corporately mm-hmm. like here we all are we got out of bed this morning we came here to worship god and we came here to say what's really true mm. and i love you know it's an opportunity to put words in the mouths of god's people and to engage hopefully their hearts along with those words and so yeah i, I think i think the use of catechisms creeds and confessions at least in my little world there seems to be a revival of that in yeah. church life which is i think is wonderful and a revival i mean this is this is him talk right so a revival of interest in the 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 way in which 
hymnody and music can be utilized mm. to reintroduce confessional and creedal material into the canon of the church, the mm. life of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we commanded to use creeds and confessions? I think so. I think, uh, I mean, not in precisely the way every church might use them, but um, there was, uh, who is it, uh, Carl Truman, mm. great historian, theologian, uh, wrote a book um, called The Creedal Imperative, and he makes, a, I think, a, I think a wonderful argument uh, as to why the idea of, of utilizing creeds mm-hmm. is actually prescribed in the Bible. And he goes with statements from like the Apostle Paul to Timothy about following the pattern of sound words. Yeah. Or Luke's statement, I don't know if he references this particular one, but Luke's statement at the start of his gospel about the things most surely believed among mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. The statement in Jude about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, uh, I believe it is Timothy who's told to guard the good deposit. Yes. Now, he, 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 those writers could simply mean the Bible. Yeah. But it seems to be that that they had in mind a, a, a catalog of doctrines, a catalog of truths that perhaps were written down. Obviously, there was, well, obviously, uh, church historians talk about the rule of faith, the regula fide. Yeah. You know, which, which um, informed the church's liturgy in the early days. Um, I think they were trying to work out something they saw yeah. the, the apostles commend. The language Paul uses in Timothy is deposit of truth. Yeah. And I think that's a, a helpful way of, of framing our understanding of what creeds are. They're, they're yeah. deposits, they're, they're summaries. I never realized until recently that Paul closes, so 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were probably written around the same time, at least within the same couple of years at mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. And Paul ends 1 Timothy with the imperative to guard the deposit of truth that's passed to you, and start 2 Timothy with the exact same imperative. Really? Okay. Yeah, so 1 Timothy, he says, uh, guard the deposit entrusted to you, and then avoid irreverent brabble, contradictions, etc., etc. And in 2 Timothy 1, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me hmm. in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's great. Well, and, and, and similarly, Paul says to Titus in Titus 2.1, I think it's there. He's just teach what accords with sound doctrine. Um, and again, I don't think it's just teach everything that's in the Bible. I mean, of course, but it seems that there's a there's a catalog of there's a there's a there's a compiled list of doctrines and truths and teachings that Paul had in mind there. What do you suppose? These are kind of two questions. What do you suppose are reasons for disinterest or animus against creeds and confessions? That's a good question. Um, I mean, disinterest could be that that objective truth is uninteresting, doctrine's mm. uninteresting, mm-hmm. and considered passe, and and um, people people just aren't that interested. When you start talking about doctrine, they want to talk about experience, and now you've pulled out this this document from 1644, 1658, or 1689, and and you're telling me this has relevance for my life, and I should read this and. In that sense, I guess people could be disinterested. And you said, what might create animus against confessions or creeds? Well, on that level of disinterest, something I hear often, Alex, from non-Christians that I seek to evangelize, that especially those who are unchurched or have had some experience in church before, is, oh, I just can't get over the standing up and the sitting down and okay. and you know saying these words and and it seems rather rote. Oh yes. to confess something. Yeah, uh, or to just repeat after me say these things. It mm-hmm. just seems weird. It spooks people out. They don't they don't like it. 
It yeah, seems uninteresting. Sure. Yeah, and I've heard I've heard people say that. that's a good point. I remember someone telling me that they said it feels like um, we're brainwashed and just saying these words and not doing them with any feeling or heart. And I think that's definitely a danger. And mm-hmm. I think those who lead in the recitation of creeds or, or confessions or catechisms need to do their part to stimulate the congregation that this is not, it's not these aren't just dead words. Mm. And um, say these words with faith. Mm. Highlight particular aspects. Don't, don't just don't just go through a liturgy mindlessly. Mm-hmm. But look, it's that way with any other aspect of worship. People yeah. could think that way about prayer. People could think that way about Bible reading. People could think that way about oh, here's just another sermon. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, the Lord's Supper can become that. Mm. I mean, any uh, Satan can dull our minds to any means of grace. Yeah. And so I don't know that confessions and all that are... are what historical anecdote that comes to my mind is I've been reading a lot about Charles Simeon lately, mm-hmm. and he was converted through contemplation of Anglican liturgy, particularly mm-hmm. surrounding the Lord's Supper. He loved that liturgy. Man. And in his day, uh, religion was very cold, and even those who were would have been pastors in his day, they wouldn't have been particularly energetic mm-hmm. in the recitation of, of their liturgy. Yet the bare words had such an impact on his life yeah. and continued to captivate and inspire him throughout his ministry. There, there's yeah. not a more beautiful, beautifully written liturgy than than uh, the Book of Common Prayer, in my yeah. opinion. I think I think they would say of Simeon sometimes he'd be looking listlessly out the window, and they'd say, "Hey Charles, what are you thinking about?" And he'd just sigh and he'd say. Just thinking about the liturgy. <laughs> he loved, loved him, some Book of Common Prayer. But no, I, I think, I just think the, the, having a liturgy provides a pattern of discipline, a pattern hmm. of thought. Hmm. We learn the things that are fundamental. We learn, we, we have words in our minds that help frame our spiritual experience. And um, I think it become profoundly helpful if used in the right way. One of the reasons, though, I think people are not as into liturgy and not as into the use of creeds and confessions and catechisms is because of the, the sort of poor, rote use of those yes. mediums. And so the onus is on us to do better, mm-hmm. to not allow that to become just a, a dead tradition, mm-hmm. um, uh, a, a, a rote practice mm-hmm. you know, that has no, no actual relevance for stirring but, our worship. But you made a valuable point that the same should be said about our, the preaching of God's word. We shouldn't read our sermons. Neither should we ju- merely just read our prayers, or should we just read scripture without any sort of uh, uh, engaging of the emotions? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'm reminded of a quote. Um, let's, it's from Yaroslav Pelikan, who's a historian. I'm going to get it wrong. He has this great turn of phrase about tradition and traditionalism. I think he says. Uh, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Hmm. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Hmm. And I think that's helpful to keep in mind. Hmm. Yeah. Alex, you think songs can be creedal? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think, I think in many ways most songs are creedal if they're a statement of what we believe about God, um, what we believe about the gospel. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that um, you have plenty of songs that are, are you have a song like Holy, 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 mm-hmm. that's really just a, a statement on the Godhead himself and who he is and consideration of his acts and works and all of that in, in creation and providence. Um, it's, it's a confession of what we believe to be true about God, and um, many of our songs are that way. And then you have a, a song like In Christ Alone, is a statement of personal faith in Jesus Christ hmm. and a statement of, of, of what our, our faith is in. And 
Um, it takes on a poetic quality. It might take on an experiential quality, but it's very much in concert with what we see in a lot of creeds and confessions. Do you think there's a need for Christian songs and Christian singing to reclaim that aspect of creedal or confessional? I think so. I think I think I've said this before on this podcast. I'm just very bothered by songs that are very indescript hmm. and uh, when it comes to truth itself. So it's just very popular in a lot of Christian music today to use very indescript language because that will appeal more broadly. Hmm. Once you start defining words and defining ideas, you define people out of the songs. Hmm. There are people who can't sing these songs and really mean them. And so uh, I'm not about songs that are just really vague right. you know, in terms of the things that they convey um, because I think... Um, it's in keeping with a larger cultural movement to not really be clear on what you mean and to mean what you say. And I like songs that are robust and filled with theological truth. I know there's a need for poetic license to some degree. There's a difference between a song and a doctrinal dictum or statement or something like that. But at the same time, it, the song itself is a poetic expression of a doctrine, hmm. of a truth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of a confession. Um, and should reflect that in the language itself. Yeah, I think so often the songs that that I tend to not like are not songs that say something I disagree with, Mm -hmm. but they're songs that are so vague that they don't really say anything worth saying, Yeah, anything that that needs defending. Well, sometimes you could hear a line from a song. It's a good test. You hear a line from a song, you can say, now what exactly does that mean? Mm. And sometimes songs are so vague with what they're saying you could ask 10 different professing Christians what they meant by, by the singing of that line, and they could all say something different. Mm. Now, there are some mugs that would rejoice in that, you know. Yeah. Oh, but that's, that's the, what's best about the song. I don't buy that for a minute. Hmm. I, don't, I don't think, well, that, that, that sounds like postmodernism to me. Well, the song means whatever it means to you. Yeah. Now, we're the people of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let, let that concrete clear, distinct thing dwelling you richly, and let that be what gives voice to your songs, hymns, mm. and spiritual songs. Mm. Well, Alex, I want us to move to our hymn of the week, or hymn of the podcast, and that is the hymn, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. This is a hymn written by Matt Papa, Jordan Coughlin, Matt Boswell, and Matt Merker, produced by Getty Music. So, virtually has uh, all of my favorite songwriters. Uh, mm. They're all mm. represented in this song. And uh, this is a song I've come to just cherish in my own personal walk with Christ. And I think our church has come to cherish as well as we've recently introduced it. The song is based on Heidelberg One. We're discussing catechism, creeds, and confessions today. Uh, one of the uh, uh, hallmarks of uh, catechisms or, or, or uh, catechesal... <laughs> Catechetical. Catechetical works is uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. And Heidelberg Catechism, obviously its most memorable question is question number one, and I wanted to read that, which the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Hmm. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. That's Heidelberg 1. Alex, 
Why do you love this question so much? Well, one of the editorial decisions the framers of that catechism made that was just brilliant, just a, a really good move, was doing the whole catechism in the first person. Mm. And that question in particular, it, it, there's something about saying, well, God works all things together for good. It's a different thing to say, all things must work together for my salvation, mm. right? He, he knows the numbers of hairs on my head. Mm. It gives an experiential quality that doesn't, doesn't dilute the doctrinal potency of of, of of the statement. And so um, I think that's that's one of the reasons I love it most. It, it may be, I don't want to exaggerate here, outside of biblical text, outside of God's <coughs> word, that may be my favorite statement in all of the English language. Hmm. I, I can't think of, of one I cherish more than Heidelberg Catechism Question 1. Again, the most obscure text in Deuteronomy might mean more to me than that, that phrase, God's word is what's chief. Right. But outside of God's word, that description of what we find in God's word is, is, I think, my favorite bit of English prose. As a pastor of a church that recites this catechism question, uh, can you speak to how people have received it over the they last few it. years? Well, yeah, I've never heard anything negative about it. Um, I've heard only, you know, sadly in, in our day and age, a lot of people don't know about the Heidelberg Catechism. Or they don't know about certain creeds and things like that. Hmm. So naturally in our church, a church that loves to say creeds and catechisms and spotlight confessions and covenants and things like that, um, I think people are helped by the language. Hmm. I think people are, 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 um, are stirred by the language. And a lot of people like the regularity of, of, of various... Um, pieces we use. And this one in particular, at least my read, is that it's a favorite among our congregation. And a lot of people have utilized it in their own personal walks with Christ. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very important uh, the way we use it, because we usually use, have a slot for a creedal statement. And this one defers in the sense that you said that it's so experiential. Yeah. I don't think we, we have anyone that's, that would speak to assurance and the way the spirit mm-hmm. uh, uh, bears witness within my soul that I'm a child of God. Yes. But the way that one summarize, the way Hadeberg one summarizes it at the end is so helpful that because I belong to Christ by His Holy Spirit, He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's a better statement we can mm-hmm. recite as mm-hmm. the people of God. Yeah, I love it. So the song basically uh, goes through each paragraph of that uh, uh, of that catechism question and um, trans- translates it into song quite well. I would just make a comment to musicians. Uh, this song is very easy to listen to, very easy to sing along to, very easy to figure out if you're a congregation. It's actually not quite as easy to play. So if you are a musician and you're you're uh, encouraged to lead this song, I'd encourage you put a lot of time, put a mm. lot of effort into learning this song, learning it well to uh, win your congregation to it because it's a necessity that you play it well for people to be able to follow it. Um, so if you're having any trouble at first, I'd encourage you to uh, keep trying. You'll eventually get it. Uh, we've done it with a guitar and a keyboard, and uh, it's gone quite well so far. We've mm-hmm. done it a couple mm-hmm. times. I don't think um, I've ever seen a song go better the first time uh, singing in a congregation than Christ mm. Our Hope in Life and Death. So, wonderful song. We recommend it to you. Alex, any other thoughts on this or the subject we're discussing today? No, I hope it becomes a classic. I hope it has staying power. And I'm just really thankful for when hymn writers, songwriters take a text, an ancient text, and bring it into the 21st century. So, 
I, I would I would hope there are others out there who will write songs about creeds, write songs about expressions of various uh, historic expressions of the faith, and I'm very thankful to those brothers for for putting in the work. Uh, it's become kind of a um, a real favorite to me as well. So. Well, friends, with that, we're out of time. Alex, thank you for your time. Thanks, brother.